The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to talk about um, surviving modern evil and who better than a Holocaust survivor to help us. Today's guest, Dr. Fred Katz, has seen the face of evil up close and personal. He's passionately trying to teach us what we need to know to overcome the evil forces in our modern life. He's just released a book. It's called Our Quest for Effective Living, and it's a survivor's call to action to make our world a better place before it's too late. So, um, Dr. Katz, wel- welcome to the show. I'm very happy to be here and talk a little bit about why I wrote this book. Yes. Um, uh, actually, this is stage three of my trying to come to terms with being a survivor. Mm-hmm. Uh, after uh, surviving and, and finding out uh, about the fate uh, of my parents and my brother, who were both killed, I went into full-time denial for about 20 years. Mm. As a, a professor of sociology, I was saying to myself and to anybody who wanted to listen, the Holocaust is not interesting. Huh. Not interesting to somebody whose parents were murdered. And, so, and I was telling stories that really smart people didn't go into this kind of stuff. So I kept this up for about 20 years. And during that time, I eventually found that my life wasn't working. And eventually, I came to the second stage, namely, professionally as a sociologist, not only was the Holocaust interesting, Mm. but we had things to say and to do that historians were not doing and that people who write personal memoirs were not doing. Yes, we should remember what happened as... uh, Historians tell us and show us exactly what happened. But when we hear the mantra, we must remember so it won't happen again. Well, yes, we should remember that these things really did happen. But remembering and shocking people has not kept people from doing terrible things again. Mm. They're just remembering, as, as historians tell us, and what historians do is important hasn't done anything to stop more uh, genocides from happening since the Second World War. Yes. And so I came to realize that as a sociologist, the challenge was to look at the Holocaust in terms of how ordinary, decent people, people like ourselves, could be and were mobilized to do terrible things. That is, to understand monstrous behavior, don't look for monsters. 
It's ordinary folks like ourselves who are fully capable of taking part in terrible things. That's what I addressed in two books that came out of that second stage, uh, showing how this works. I don't want to go into the detail on that, but that became my, my mission to show that it is ordinary, decent people, in this case, Germ- ordinary Germans, people who are not crazed lunatics to start with, became big-time participants in carrying out the Holocaust. And this applies even to other genocides, that you don't have to select crazed people to start with. Decent, ordinary people can be and have been recruited to do terrible things. So this led to two books, one called Ordinary People and Extraordinary Evil, and the other one is called Confronting Evil. The Confronting Evil also includes my personal story of how I went back to my village and confronted things, but basically this was stage two. Then I came to realize, and this is where I am now in recent years, in the last few years, that even that is not good enough, that from a larger perspective, when things such as genocides happen, we seem to be totally impotent as social scientists or other people, but particularly in my line of work as a sociologist, we don't predict these things. We certainly don't stop them. Hmm. We come up with explanations afterwards like anybody else, but that is really pretty impotent. Mm -hmm. And my response to that is the social sciences, particularly my field, lack basic infrastructure of real science. And this is what this crusade is all about. This is my crusade in this coming book where I try to jumpstart a basic science that can give us some real weapon eventually to prevent real horrors that we're doing to ourselves. And the larger picture there is that we've heard a lot about the evolution and species that evolve, but not very much about species becoming extinct. A lot of species have become extinct. And the, whether our human race is going to become extinct in the foreseeable future is a real possibility, as I see it. And that's why we need a far more viable and real basic science of social space, as I call it. Now, before we get into your, um, you know, these theories that you've developed, um, I, how I, I was noticing that the book just came out in 2011. So how, but you had the other books before. How has the field of sociology um, reacted to your theories? Not very much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, I'm not in the mainstream, and. Uh, Basically, sociology is into studying conditions that exist around us. In the last 20 years or so, women's studies, racism, and before that, things such as family, solidarity. Mm-hmm. Not very much about the sociologists, although there's been some, but no specific reaction to me. But partly... This is because I'm no longer a professor. I'm a retired person. I'm no longer in the mainstream of 
addressing conventions and so on, so I haven't really given it a chance as yet. But there have been some very favorable reactions, I must say. One one professor at Harvard described my writings as the best writings on the Holocaust. Mm. Well, that's an honor. Yes. Um, well, I do want you to explain uh, explain your theories. Um, I mean, I think maybe part of it also has to do with the fact that it's it's somewhat it's sort of a mixture of philosophy and yes. sociology. It's a little yes. uh, above <laughs> yes. the uh, the um, typical you know psychology sociology textbooks. Yes. Um, so, but we'll get to that. But um, could you just uh, briefly tell? You know, I think, of course, the, the theories, the things that the, and you're writing, the whole book has so much more weight because of um, the fact that you experienced this evil, the evil of the Holocaust. Yes. And um, could, so could you give, give us a little bit of a background of your own story? How old were you when, when the Holocaust came and so on? Well, it... Um... I was born in 1927, so in 1933, when Hitler came to power, I started first grade. Mm. I, was, I was living in a small rural village, and there I began school in the first year that Hitler came to power, and it was a nightmare from then on. Um, let me give you one vignette to start with. Yes. Uh, when I was about in the second grade or so, the children in my class sang the Horst Wessel song. The Horst Wessel was some Nazi hero. Mm. Well, the wording of that song were, when Jewish blood comes spurting from the knife, then things go really well. Huh. From that moment, I stopped singing for 30 years. Mm. I stopped singing for 30 years. So during, during those years when um, people were singing on some occasions, I wouldn't join in because I didn't know how to sing. Now, before I was married, I used to be invited to the home of friends for Passover Seder. And toward the end of that Seder, there are all kinds of songs, particularly appealing to children. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't join in because I didn't know how to sing. Well, when I was eventually married and conducted the Seder of my own, I suddenly sang these songs. Mm. And I've been in love with these songs ever since. So whenever I made a Seder, it's, a, it's hard to stop me from singing them. Mm-hmm. In other words, singing suddenly came back to me. Mm, yes, after. Um, well, that's just one, one item. And then... The, I was in the uh, in the village during Kristallnacht, which is uh, the in 1938, just before my 11th birthday. There was this uh, big attack on Jews, and um, during the daytime, all the men and older boys were arrested, were taken away from our village, and only the women and children remained. And my mother and I were hiding in an attic at night. And we heard people breaking into the house and smashing everything and yelling, mm. where are the Jews? We didn't know whether we'd be alive the next morning. Mm. So these were some of my experiences there. And uh, 
also the, the sense I had, not only the fear of being beaten up every day, but also the sense that my parents could not protect me. Mm-hmm. And, and that was very much an item in my outlook. Now, eventually, my, my mother found out about the kinder transport, which was the rescue operation that sent about 10,000 Jewish children from Central Europe to England just before the Second World War started. So she arranged for me to be on that uh, rescue operation. Hmm. So and by then you were how old? Eleven. At, oh, that was when you were 11. Okay. Yeah. And you had an older brother? Well, I had an older brother who left and didn't... Uh, there was a movement during the 1930s of young Jewish uh, kids yeah, to train to become farmers and go to what was then Palestine hmm. to settle the land as farmers. But before going, they were to be, they were to be trained in various countries some in Sweden, some in Italy, and some in Holland, where my brother joined that movement in order to emigrate to what was then Palestine, and he went to Holland, and unfortunately he never got past Holland. When the Germans invaded, he was caught up, and he was eventually deported and killed. So huh. he didn't so survive. He, so he, he was in a different... Your, your parents were in Auschwitz, but he was no, in no. a... No, no. No, my parents... Remained in the village. Yeah. And I left in 39, and in 1942, all the Jews from that village and all the surrounding areas were picked up on the same day and sent to an extermination area in Poland, not, not Auschwitz, a place called Itzpitza. I don't know what happened afterwards, except that I was told they were declared dead on a certain date. I don't mm. know the specifics. My brother was sent to an ex- uh, extermination camp from Holland, but my parents, uh, I don't know how they came to die. I say, huh. But then oh, my. Wait, of- well, that's, I don't know if you can hear the music, but that's signaling that we need to take a break, and that's kind of a poignant time to take a break. Okay. Um, so why don't we do that? My guest is Dr. Fred Katz. His current book, his most recent book, is called Our Quest for Effective Living. And um, when we come back, he'll tell us more about his own experiences and his uh, theories about how we can stop these kinds of atrocities from, having, from happening again. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... 
Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Fred Katz, the author of um, a book called Our Quest for Effective Living, A Window to a New Science, How We Cope in Social Space. He's going to be explaining what he's, you know, what he has defined as social space and, and the four concepts that, that, um, that, that you can derive from that to help us survive modern evil. And who better than a Holocaust survivor to help us survive modern evil since he managed to survive um, the evil of not too long ago, actually. Um, I, during the break, I was asking Dr. Katz about, how, you know, of course, <laughs> Dr. Katz is a psychiatrist. I always put my guests on the couch, you know, regardless of what they're talking about. So I hope uh, I'm trying to be sensitive because I know this is <laughs> this is an incredibly sad story. Um, but... What I was interested in as a psychiatrist was, and I started asking you this during the break, was how you were feeling when your mother put you on the train to to help you escape. And, of course, had she not done that, you would not be on my show today. So how were you feeling? I was simply blanking out. I was only thinking of, I must get away. That was the only thought I had. I, I could, did not entertain the idea that I might not see her again. I was just wondering, why is she crying? I was, t- I was totally blank except for this one thought. And, and this, she... in terms of your trades, has stayed with me for years. This, I, this notion, this is part of my survivor syndrome afterwards, was whenever things go bad, I must move. Hmm. And later, some years later, I counted, I had moved 36 times when I stopped counting. Huh. When things go bad, I move. Now, lately, I've lived for 30 years in Baltimore. I'm no longer doing this. But this was part of my syndrome, my protective syndrome. I got to move. Yes. And now that must have made it very interesting for you to have not, relationships. Not, uh, damn right. I'll give you one other example of this syndrome of, of not being able to find roots. Uh, it was 
in the academic business, you know, there uh, you become a lecturer, assistant professor, associate professor, and then full professor, mm -hmm. the sequence. Right. And as a full professor, typically you have lifetime tenure. Mm -hmm. You can't be fired except if you do really stupid stuff. Right. But you've got to be really stupid. Basically, you can't be fired. Well, I went through this at diff two different universities. I went through this twice, each time becoming a full-time, a full professor with lifetime tenure, and each time I walked away mm. from a lifetime tenure job. The second one, after the second one, I didn't have another job to fall back on. Mm. And that was a real turning point in my life. Uh, that, in other words, this pattern uh, of of not feeling rooted here and now took me a long time to overcome. Mm -hmm. I, I did finally overcome it, I think, in finding a mission in my work, mm -hmm. as well as uh, having a family. But uh, a part of my sense of a crusade that there are, there's some serious work that I need to do is rooted in this long process of finding that I really belong in this here world. Yes. Well, you know, you write, uh, I know of six Holocaust survivors who became famous writers yeah. but committed suicide at the height of their fame. They regard each success as an indication that they are dancing on the grave of loved ones who did not live to have success. So how, I mean, is that part of it also that you, when you reach these pinnacles that not only did you not want to be tied to any one spot, but that you, you, the survivor guilt overtook you? Well, I'm saying it is a form of survivor guilt, and different people uh, handle it differently. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying the, the people I wrote about there, particularly the famous Primo Levi, for him there is a detailed uh, information of how this happened. And in, in this particular, and that is really uh, one of the four pillars of my new book, mm -hmm. is the idea of what I call the second path. That is, survivor guilt is one form of things that we don't talk about, don't mention publicly. And this is part of a larger phenomenon that all of us in our daily life, there are things we can't talk about in in public. That is particularly when we're. I'm going to get back to your point in a minute. Sure, go ahead. But the larger point is, in our daily life, in our work particularly, we put forward a picture of ourselves that I'm. I'm I sort of know what I'm doing. I have skills. I know what I'm about. I'm fairly confident. I have something to offer. At the same time, in our daily work context, there are things we may be annoyed about, uneasy about, scared about, furious about, that we cannot mention in that context. We tend to shunt them aside into what I'm calling second path. It's very close to what you folks deal with in the, in the unconscious mm -hmm. psychiatry business. We tend to shunt them aside into a second path, and that is sort of a safety valve, and it usually works. Now, but sometimes it can overflow. Now, in the case of the Holocaust survivors uh, who became famous writers that I wrote about, well, their survivor guilt was 
sort of comfortably shunted aside. In the case of Primo Levi, for example, he first wrote very insightful books about his experience in the Holocaust, and then he wrote beautiful books about nature hmm. and made one think that this guy has really made it. He's gotten beyond this survivor guilt stuff. Uh-huh. It turns out it wasn't true. And that what really happened, and this has been documented in, uh, in biographies about him, that each new success he would define as more failure mm-hmm. until life became intolerable. So at one moment of time, he told somebody, this is worse than Auschwitz. Mm. What's worse than Auschwitz? Did he get another award? Mm. And so that process, that is the stuff that was silent in the second path, in this case, was shunted aside, um, was really not dead. It was very much alive, but it wasn't just survival guilt in the sense it's something in the past, but rather an active part of the present that interacts with the present. Yes. Well, why don't we um, back up before you go into the four um, parts of, of the theory of social space and yeah. define social space. That we exist, we human beings exist in interaction with other people. And we're both separate creatures, identifiably separate, but we're also in interaction, in interrelationship with others. That's what social space is about. Yes, I like the way you, you described it at the beginning of the book um, as when we're born, we are a unique individual individuals, and yet at the same time we're dependent upon the world, a mother or father to feed us, um, and other things in our outside world, interacting with our outside world. So it, it's that duality that is what you define as social space. That's correct? right. That's right. Okay. That, and actually, uh, I'm not really the very first to do that. About 60 years ago, a man named Kurt Lewin, who, became, who was an immigrant uh, a social scientist who became known as the father of social psychology, and he developed what he called a field theory about humans existing in a field. And he borrowed this state from physics, about, and he used concepts from physics. Well, my social space is very similar, except I don't use physics, a uh, bag of tricks, but invent my own. Mm-hmm. I don't use the concept from physics, such as vectors that he used, but, but developed four constructs of my own that I propose. Okay. And, um, maybe I, I should just say one word. Yes, I was just going to say, why don't you start uh, telling us about those four um, ways constructs. that... Well, the, um, one more word about what I'm borrowing from physics. Sure. A famous guy, a famous physicist, Henry Morgan, now who taught at Yale for some years, wrote a famous book, The Nature of Physical Reality. And in it, he made the point that the basic concept, the basic tool of science are constructs. DNA is a construct. The periodic table in chemistry is a construct. Neurotransmitters are constructs. So what or gravitation in physics is a construct. What are, so what are constructs? What do all these things have in common? 
all of them look at some things in nature and add the mental leap to make sense of it. They add a mental leap to make sense of uh-huh. something in nature. And those are the basic building blocks of the, of the strongest sciences. Well, I'm suggesting four of those, and namely, I've already mentioned one, what I call the second path, and I've already gone into it, so maybe I'll hold off on that. <clears throat> then there are three others, what I call closed moral worlds. Uh, uh, well, let me first list them. Closed yeah. moral worlds, transcendence, and links. Closed moral worlds are... We exist as, we human beings are basically pitching ourselves to some sort of a moral context. If I say I'm a man, I'm saying something, what it means to be a man. If I say I'm an American, it's a moral statement of what being an American is. Or if I say I'm a woman, it means what, what it means to be a woman. In other words, it gives us our sense of identity of who we are in moral, in moral terms. Mm-hmm. We, our identity is pitched to, morally speaking, what we're about by some kind of a context. Now, in the book, I address, they're both very uh, profoundly meaningful things, such as the ones I mentioned of giving your life meaning of who you are. But in the book, I started out with how this can be having some very serious consequences. So I look at the famous uh, Milgram experiments of, about shock treatments. That's mm. probably the most famous psychological experiment during the past century where, where people were encouraged to... Uh, where Milgram t- tried to test the theory that Americans surely wouldn't be so uh, prone to obeying authority the way the Germans were. Mm. Surely the reason why the Germans went along with all this Nazi stuff because they're brought up to obey authority. When somebody in the authority says to do something, they do it. Okay, well, I, need to, I need to stop you there because the music is playing again. So we need to take another break, but that's, okay. that's uh, good. <laughs> and they keep everybody curious as to what, what comes next. Okay. <laughs> My guest is Dr. Fred Katz. We're talking about uh, how to survive modern evil. He's helping us do it because uh, he's a Holocaust survivor and has seen evil up close and personal. His book is Our Quest for Effective Living. And um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I know you want to hear more about Milgram's experiment. <laughs> so we'll be right back. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with my guest, Dr. Fred Katz, the author of several books, his latest one being Our Quest for Effective Living. And it's a survivor's call to action to make our world a better place before it's too late. And he's doing this by trying to help people understand um, what the constructs are in our world. In other words, what what are some of the sociological rules that we unknowingly, <laughs> unconsciously, I guess, live by, so that we can then um, not um, not do not follow in the path of the Nazis or other evildoers. So go ahead. Before the break, you were starting to explain Milgram's experiment. Well, Stanley Milgram was a young American psychologist who tried to test the idea whether Americans would be so prone to obeying authority the way the Germans supposedly were. So he set up an experiment where people were instructed to give electric shocks to persons who were totally innocent. Now, the whole thing was rigged. There really weren't any electric shocks. But the people who took part didn't know this. So to everybody's surprise, it was found they behaved like Germans. Mm -hmm. They obeyed authority. They were told to give electric shocks. who were screaming in pain. They kept on doing it because somebody in authority told them to do it. And, and so, yes, and the people who were screaming with pain were actors. They were just doing yeah, that pretending. They were they actors were. except the ones who were the subjects. Who, who right. Thought, that, that's right. The and people so who were giving the shocks any, didn't know that the yeah. that the people who were getting them were were actors. They thought yeah. they really were shocking them, and yet they That's did. Right. That's right. Yet they did. So Milgram's answer is, wow, wow lots. Everybody seems to be like that. Mm-hmm. Well, my interpretation of that is that what was really happening here is Milgram created a little moral world of its own. Mm where it was morally justified to do terrible things. That is, each of the people who took part wouldn't ordinarily do any of these things. And yet in that context, they were persuaded that it was morally justified to do horrible things. Mm-hmm. That's the theory I'm proposing. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want other examples, um, ordinary soldiers, say American soldiers... Ordinarily, they're brought up like ordinary people who, who feel that you don't go around killing people. Killing is a distinct no-no in our culture, in our society. Yet when you're in battle, you're encouraged not only to kill, but it is morally justified to kill. Mm-hmm. So this notion of moral justifications is a serious issue in our makeup. Now, in in the book, I deal with even more extreme forms of cultures of cruelty at Auschwitz where distinct forms of cruelty were 
and were created as part of that culture of cruelty. And so let me just leave it at that about moral world. Well, well I just wanted you to mention um, this might be a good place to talk about uh, terrorists. You mentioned yeah. that. Well, the, it's really the next item on transcendence. Oh, okay, yes. It's better in my, uh, the next yes. term I, uh, I have is transcendence. It is, although we live in a, in a context wherever we are, we are often trying to reach out beyond. And, and particularly, let's say I, I discuss cults where they are made to feel they're in touch with some ultimate rea- out, uh, reality out there to which they have access and which gives them access to a much higher life. Well, in terms of terrorists, they are encouraged to th- I think the basic mindset of terrorists is that they feel they, have, they transcend the here and now and have access to the ultimate evil. And by their own act of terror, of suicide, they are personally choking the great Satan. They have access to the ultimate evil. Now, transcendence it can be both transcendence reaching the ultimate good and the ultimate evil. Mm. It's the idea of transcendence that I talk about in this section. I start out by giving a very positive example of transcendence, namely the case of a dying woman in, Auschwitz, in the Auschwitz concentration camp. Yes, it's a beautiful story. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was reported by Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist but also an inmate. And so he makes the rounds one day of, of, of a building there, and he comes to a young woman lying on a cot. She faces a window. And she is obviously close to death. She knows it. He knows it. So he goes up to her and says, how are you doing? She says, oh, I'm great. Yes? I've never felt better in my life. Yes? Yes, I have my friend. Your friend? The tree. She points to the tree. I talk to him. So he thinks she's out of it. She's hallucinating. Mm -hmm. So what does the tree say? Well, the tree is saying... I am here, I am here, I am eternal life. She found eternal life. Mm-hmm. She found access to an, a spiritual reality out there, and she, a, a few moments later, uh, said how, how happy she was to have found this, this. She was happier than she had ever been before. She found eternal life. She found access to an ultimate reality out there and brought it into the here and now. Mm-hmm. That's the point of the transcendence. Mm-hmm. That uh, to, to somehow have a knowledge of something out there, whether it's any spiritual being, and it becomes relevant and brought into the, your life here and now. Now, this applies to prayer, those who are seriously into prayer can the same kind of things. Uh, and, well, I, I, talk, I have a section about my reaction to Jewish prayer, why we, why we spend so much time praising God. Does God need us to cheer him on? <laughs> What's all this about? We can't seem to find enough nice things to see <laughs> how great God is. He, wh- why are we doing all this? Okay. Well, we're really talking about God's transcendence, that he is really the ultimate transcending uh, thing we can conceive of. 
and we can have access to that transcendence mm. by keeping our relationship to God in good repair by observing rituals and stuff. That's what it's all about as far mm. as I'm concerned when we're praying, that mm. we have access to transcendence by attaching ourselves to an all-transcendent God. Uh-huh. Uh, and, of course, I mean, you can, of course, people are more uh, vulnerable or needy of this, of transcendence. Yeah. The more things in their life are yes. not going well, whether it's being in a concentration camp or, um, you know, being in a really bad state where all of a sudden people then start praying, you know, yeah, like people who I don't mean just Jews. I mean like in general, people. Yes, yes. You know, All of a sudden, it's oh my God, you know, and and people are are suddenly uh, remember that there's a God. Yeah, and, and even even coping with death and right. illness among people who are uh, terrible things happening to nice people, coping with with horrors. Right. And uh, so we call on God uh, as a way of making sense of it, of transcending, getting into a space that goes beyond that or trying to create a reality that goes, takes us beyond that. Yes. And so that's what the transcendence thing is about. Mm-hmm. And then finally links, namely that we human beings are connected in, in many ways long before Facebook and social networks mm-hmm. We humans have been connected to one another. So uh, I give a number of examples of how we are linked. One example is uh, our eating patterns. So typically the, uh, the traditional family dinner of sitting down together uh, typically follows a particular format. There might be a prayer before uh, there might be a talk about what happened that day, and there might be talk about a relative who's sick. Uh, family matters can mm-hmm. be talked about and discussed, but there's a fairly fixed format. Well, that's one type of eating, but modern families often don't eat like that. Mm-hmm. They are, often eat on the run. Right. It seems that somebody's always away at a meeting and can't make it, or a quick run to a, to a, to a r- restaurant. There seems to be a very different pattern of of, of eating than the traditional ones. Yes. But each of the well, the first one is linked. The main link is family tradition. That's how we do this in our family. The second one is linked to careers, careers that dominate family life. You got to go to a meeting. It's more important than sitting down with with a family kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But these are different links. It is an illustration of links that uh, how they happen and make an imprint on our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I have a number of examples. Uh, uh, I have uh, a little uh, vignette about Indira Gandhi when she. Oh, wait, 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 wait! <laughs> Save that vignette for when the when the after the break. Okay. Um, the breaks are coming so quickly because you're so fascinating. My guest is Dr. Fred Katz. He is a Holocaust survivor, and he's helping us to um, figure out how to survive the modern evils. His book is Our Quest for Effective Living. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, and we'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with my guest, Dr. Fred Katz. His book is Our Quest for Effective Living, um, How We Cope in Social Space. He's been describing social space and the four attributes that it has, uh, the second path, the closed moral walls, transcendence, and connected. And we were just, you were just about to uh, tell us a, a story related to connected links. Yeah, well, in case you, you, you're not sufficiently interested yet, I do have a lot of stuff on links to sex. In the book. <laughs> yes. But, um, but uh, the one I'm talking about now is a very, is a silent link to sex, namely when Mrs. Andira Gandhi became Prime Minister of India, and I forgot about 30 or so years ago, but about 40 years ago, one of the first things she did was come to America to ask for economic help for, for India. She went to the United States and to the Soviet Union. Well, her manner was so charming, nobody could claim that she was sexually flirting with President Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> but her manner was so charming, so tinged with sexuality, <laughs> that Lyndon Johnson said, I'll give her anything she wants. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> same thing happened in the Soviet Union with Alexei Kosygin, who's this dour, wooden-looking guy. He suddenly became this animated, charming host <laughs> in the face of this charming woman, and he produced economic help. For India. <laughs> so, so I'm talking about there was a silent sexuality there. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it worked. Well, that was, yes, that was, uh, <laughs> that was fortunate for India, right? Yeah. But the point is, if it had been made explicit, it would have exploded. Uh-huh. It wouldn't have worked. Uh-huh. It worked because it was silent. Now, in our marketing stuff, this is done all the time. Yes. That uh, sex is used silently as a way of greasing the works, of making the sale of toothpaste or whatever. Yes, absolutely. Or sometimes not so silently, like when a half-naked woman is lying on top of a car, right? So yes, yes, to entice you to buy the so car. Silent. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in, at the beginning of your book, you talk about, and you, you mentioned it um, today on the show at the beginning, 
um, about this issue of the human species becoming an endangered species. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting because, I mean, we think about protecting the wild, this and that, all these endangered species. I mean, there are all these um, organizations and funds and so on to protect endangered species, and that's wonderful uh, because it's really sad how many of our species we've lost and uh, those that are endangered by the cutting down of the Amazon and so on. But, you know, we don't, and I guess it's partly denial, we don't uh, think of it as the, we don't think of the possibility that we as a species can be extinct. Yes, and, we um, can be endangered. Yes, could be endangered and then become extinct. And you talk about, um, you know, natural disasters and, and, uh, or viruses. Of course, there's the movie out, I don't know if you saw it, Contagion. Um, and, oh, and, but we don't, and of course the, the humans, of course the worst danger is, um, yeah. what the humans do to each other with, with yes. weapons of mass, mass destruction and so on, terrorism and so on. And, but it, it I mean, it, it's just like, um, it kind of, I mean, that's what, that's what makes what you're trying to say, what you're trying to teach people, um, passionately because you want to leave this as a legacy that, that it doesn't happen again, you know, never that's again. Right. That we might survive a little longer, right? And 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 I think that's sort of a wake up call because um, because we blindly go along, <laughs> you're thinking that uh, that that could never happen. That that we're the we're the best. We're the we're the top of the heap, and it could never happen to us that we become extinct. Yes, and and I'm trying to supply uh, a bit of a, a method of getting getting on track. Yes, go ahead. And that it's not just a matter of talking about how horrible the horrors were, but trying to create some basic science to give us the tools. So, okay, so how, um, I know we don't have very much time left, but in a general sense, if you could sort of tie it together, and how can people, should people, use um, these, this, uh, these, Theories, these ideas about social space and the and the four um, constructs related to it that you just explained. How can we put that together to to do something to prevent our well? Uh, the first step is to become aware of wh- how things are really working uh-huh. in a, in our lives. To become far more sensitive and aware of how things work. And the, and also, quite frankly, I'm trying to create a new generation of people to work on the science, to take it beyond what I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not likely to be around forever, and very few of us are. But the, quite seriously, I, I'm trying to get a new generation of people to work on, the, of helping to create a more viable science that can give us two... A, Tools. I'm not saying uh, we can stop genocide by doing A, B, and C. Uh, well, the, the model, if, I don't know whether we have a minute, let me give you uh, the model of what I'm talking about. About 30 or 40 years ago, uh, President, um, uh, American President, uh, I have my senior moments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah tried to become famous by conquering cancer mm-hmm. and threw a lot of money at it, and it failed. Mm-hmm. He tried to create science about cancer, and it failed. What might give us 
the weapons against cancer as we get more effective knowledge of the workings of DNA, how cancer cells have aberrations in their DNA that produced it. But it's the DNA that is the basic science that might give us the weapons against cancer rather than a head-on science about cancer. Yes. So I'm saying creating better basic science in in this uh, medical science in this case might eventually give us the tools to conquer cancer by its indirect way of doing it by creating the basic science first. Yes, and that's what you're trying to do that's in what terms I'm of trying to do the sociology to, have, to, to yes. help, to so help it's people. It's not a direct how-to, but an indirect way of creating better basic science. And I see myself as not having the last word, but a little beginning mm-hmm. of, for creating this and hopefully getting some other people to work on this uh, this direction uh, of creating more more workable basic science and that is a prerequisite to becoming more effective at surviving our the dangers that we've been creating for ourselves yes well may i suggest um that even though or or in in fact, fortunately, since you are a retired professor, uh, twice over, <laughs> that you now take your time um, to to go about and and do these lectures to uh, to sociology departments and and um, basically any philosophy departments, psychology departments, um, anywhere where people will you know would be interested in this. It's a, it's a really unique way of looking at things. Actually, I'm scheduled to give one set of lectures next week and another in St. Louis and another one in Boston at Boston University. Oh, that's fabulous. Because this is really fascinating stuff, and it is a unique way, a different way of looking at things that uh, opens up windows to, you know, to thinking about them and to to then... um, I mean, you you give, for example, of course we didn't have the time to go into it in greater detail, but some of the things that you talk about in terms of the suicide bomber's mind, and particularly in regard to transcendence, but other things, I mean, all of that is so so interesting and uh, and important, and um, and so so all you know, I think it's the first step, as you were saying, is to open open people's minds to thinking of things in. In different ways that might be more successful to stopping uh, to stopping all to stopping ourselves from from causing the human race to become extinct. It's, it's certainly endangered at this point, but yeah. to become extinct. Oh, I, I hear the music. I want to give out uh, the name of the book again so that people can go to Amazon and get it. And also, you can look up um, Dr. Fred Katz's other books. Which presumably are on Amazon as well. Yeah, but um, there you'd have to look um, under Fred Emil Katz. You have to use my middle name. Ah, okay. So it's Fred Emil for the previous books. E M I L is his middle name. Katz, yeah. K A T Z. And this current book is called Our Quest for Effective Living: A Window to a New Science, How We Cope in Social Space. That fascinating stuff. And I wish you well. And I wish that you. Uh, I do hope that you can that you can spread this around um, as much as possible. 
to uh, to get people thinking. I mean, you know, because we get so discouraged about thinking it's so hopeless. How can we stop everyone from being so evil? And yet, um, obviously, these new paradigms can be a way of opening the windows. So, Dr. Katz, thank you so much for joining thank you me on for having me, Dr. Carol's Carol. Couch. And thank you all for listening. I, I know this has been uh, a very intriguing subject for you today and, and for me, too. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 